0: Amen. If you're able, please remain standing and turn with me to uh, John chapter four, John's Gospel chapter four. Our text uh, for this morning's sermon will be verses one through fifteen, and Lord willing, next time we'll we'll finish uh, looking at this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. So we'll begin reading this morning at verse 1 through 15. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we read your word here, And now hear the preaching of it that you would by your spirit, the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, bless it so that we may be convicted of our sins and shortcomings and also be encouraged and comforted and satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you all the praise and glory we ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Just before he ascended into heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ uttered these words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. These were his words to his apostles and by extension his church, even to us today. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be His witnesses, to testify of His grace, His gospel to all nations across the world, beginning with those areas. And of course, Jesus, He modeled this in His earthly ministry before His ascension. If you look at a map and you follow Him, In his travelings during his earthly ministry, you will find uh, that he went to the outskirts of Palestine. He went to the south in Bethany in Judea, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Also went to the north to that area called Tyre, which was on the verge of the Gentile area. And of course, in our text here, we find him in the middle in Samaria where he ministers to this woman at the well. And Jesus, he not only modeled that geographical uh, traveling as he commanded his church in Acts 1, he also uh, teaches us that he came to save sinners, that he as the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And he also shows us in his Gospels that he came to save all types of, Of men, women, and children. Not just from every nationality or every ethnicity, but all sorts of men and women and children within those nations. For instance, in John chapter 3, we find Nicodemus coming to our Lord Jesus. Nicodemus of the Pharisees, the teacher in Israel, self-righteous, yes. One who had status, who probably had money, and who was very religious and well kept outwardly. But then in our text, we learn of this woman. And because of the way that women were treated in many cultures in the days of Jesus, this woman, who would have been of a lower class of society, probably uneducated, and as the passage makes clear, morally impure and an outcast, uh, Jesus comes to this woman as well, a woman indeed broken. By her own sin. And so Jesus, the master evangelist, he teaches us how, as Christians, we may reach out to sinners who do not yet know him. And we're going to look at this, not only in this passage this morning and the week ahead, but also as we move through John's gospel. We're going to take the cues of Jesus And hopefully, if we haven't already, uh, inculcate and place them in our own lives so that we may follow Him in reaching out and being salt and light on His behalf. Jesus, though, is the evangelist. He is the master preacher and evangelist. But His message is always the same, isn't it? It is repentance from our sins, turning to Him, turning to the living God, And putting our trust in him. That's always the message. The gospel. In this instance though as we look at what happens here uh, to this woman at the well. We're going to find that one of the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ is full joy, full satisfaction. That only the gospel of Jesus Christ enables men to be right with God. To have all their sins washed away forever. But also, it's only through the gospel, and in particular, Jesus, who is the gospel, that we receive full joy and their full satisfaction forever. And that is to say this. It is to say that only a restored soul is a satisfied soul. I want you to listen very carefully. Only a restored soul is a satisfied soul. Only a soul that has been restored to a communion with God. Only a soul that has been restored to a right relationship with the living God is a truly satisfied soul. That's The main message that we find here, I think, in this text for this morning. And so basically, we're going to see two things that our Lord Jesus does. First of all, he directs this woman to that which does not satisfy the soul. And second, can you guess what he does? He directs this woman to that which does satisfy the soul. Now, John, he sets the stage here. He tells us in the first three or so verses that Jesus left um, Judea and that he was headed for Galilee. And that's important for us to note. Um, It says there in verse one, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John. Perhaps the heat was turning up and Jesus was not yet wanting to engage the Pharisees. And so he wants to to get the gospel out and build more disciples. And so he leaves that region. And John tells us that back in chapter 3, it wasn't actually Jesus himself baptizing the disciples, but the disciples of Jesus were baptizing individuals. Jesus baptized no one. And so in verse 4 or verse 3, it says he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And verse 4 says, but he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Well, in the original it says it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. That is because he had this divine appointment with this woman of Samaria that we'll meet in just a moment. Now, this is significant. and This will come out in the conversation. It's significant that Jesus did not go around Samaria. In fact, the Jews uh, painstakingly avoided going through that region. Galilee was to the north of Jerusalem, and uh, Samaria was right in the middle of those two cities. And uh, in the bulletin, I placed a little map there. If you can read it, you'll see that region. You'll see Jesus's direct travel going through Samaria, but also an alternate route that the Jews would normally take. And the Jews would normally go around Samaria to the east. They would cross the Jordan River, go up the bank of the Jordan River. And then when they had passed that area of Samaria, they would go west again, crossing the Jordan River and go into Galilee. That was the path that they took for their journey. Now, why did they do this? They did it because there was this age old feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, this was all in the land of Palestine. But you have to understand the Judeans. After they went into Babylon, captivity and so forth, they were called the Jews for sure. J-U, we spell Their ethnicity or whatever. J.E.W. today. But that's why they were called Jews. And uh, what happened even before the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. um, There was the Assyrian captivity in 720 B.C. And so the Assyrians, they captured uh, the people of what is now Samaria or what was back then Samaria. And they did what uh, nations did. They conquered their area. And they exiled, they took prisoners from that area, these Samaritans, and took them back to Assyria and uh, Media at that time. And so what happened is the Assyrians conquered other nations and they brought some from those nations back to the same area where the Samaritans had been taken. And guess what happened? Over time, the Samaritans intermarried with those foreigners And this was bad in the eyes of the Jews because the Jewish people, they took pride in their ethnicity, their pedigree. Um, They were told not to intermarry. And so for the other Israelite people, the Jews, this was unacceptable. It was unforgivable. Later in history, before the New Testament, uh, the Babylonians captured parts of Jerusalem or captured Jerusalem. They took the Israelites into Babylon But those Israelites, the Jewish people, they did not intermarry. So eventually they were allowed to come back. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And their task was given to them by God to rebuild the temple. And so the Samaritans who had been back to their land, yet intermarried, they offered to help the Jewish people rebuild the temple. But the Jews said, no, thank you. Since you are defiled because you intermarried, You may not partake in this holy task of rebuilding God's temple and kingdom. And so that didn't strike very well with the Samaritans. And that began this age old feud between the Jews and the Samaritans that lasted even until the day of our Lord Jesus, as we see in our passage. And so that's the background of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman. And so Jesus, he finally arrives to the Samaritan area and he is exhausted. And so he takes his seat, as John tells us, near Jacob's well. And we are told that this was a plot of land purchased by Jacob. That's in Genesis 33. Jacob bequeathed this land to his son, Gave it to Joseph. That's in Genesis 48. In this area, and therefore this well especially, was very special to the Samaritans. This well was probably 100 feet deep. And so in order to get any water out of it, you needed a pail or some sort of um, device with which to draw that water. And so we are told it was the sixth hour. The Jews started their day at 6 a.m. So it was 12. It was noon. It was the... Middle of the day. Remember, this is a very arid, arid desert-like area. It was hot. It was dry. And so Jesus, he was tired. We are told he was wearied from the point uh, to the point of exhaustion, and he was thirsty. And so let us not overlook what John is describing here about our Lord Jesus, his humanity. Jesus, as John 1 so plainly teaches, is God. He is the the eternal Word made flesh. But also, He is man because He took upon Himself human flesh. So He is the God man, those two natures forever united, inseparably in one person, the Lord Jesus. And so here's the God man sitting down, resting. And so this woman comes. She arrives in the middle of the day, alone, and this is very unusual. Why do I say that? Well, typically women would flock together in the morning to go get water, to get water for the day. And they would do that because that's what women did culturally. But this woman comes midday. You add to that what some people say that there were other wells probably closer to where this Samaritan woman lived. This was like a half mile away from where she lived. And so that's a considerable hike to get water. Why is it that she comes in the middle of the day all alone when other women go in the morning with other women? It's because she's an outcast. She's not welcome to be with the other women. And she's lonely, by herself, and unexpectedly meets the one who will change her life forever. Jesus of Nazareth. And we're told as well, a little more about her later in the conversation. In verse 18, Jesus says, For you have said... Or For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. And so Jesus there speaks as a prophet. He knows her. Jesus knew, knew what was in man, right? He, he's God. John chapter 2. Well, this woman was an immoral woman. And she had been with five husbands. The one whom she is with now is not her husband. So she has a reputation. And so she meets the Lord Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Well, John tells us there in verse seven, he he requests, he asks her, he says to her, give me a drink. And he's not being chauvinist. He's asking for a favor. And uh, she has all of the um, the ways to get that water. She's going to be doing it anyway. He's exhausted And uh, he didn't ask his disciples, John tells us there in verse eight, because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And Jesus, not only being all knowing, um, but also being very wise, all wise, he sends his disciples to go get food. You know, if you're going to have a conversation with someone about the Lord, sometimes one on one is better because you're going to have to talk about uncomfortable things. And uh, it's more likely that people will open up if you're one-on-one in that setting. And so Jesus does that, very wisely, so. And so then he makes that request. And, and why does Jesus do this, by the way? He could have ignored her. He could have just made water. He's already turned water into wine. He's engaging. This poor, lost soul. He takes the initiative, right? As should we when it comes to evangelism and telling others about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he wins her ear here. He's drawing her into this conversation. And so in verse 9, she asked that question, How is it that you ask me for a drink? You know, she's a Samaritan woman. Not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. We've already seen that the Jews have no interaction, nothing to do with the Samaritans, but also she's a woman. In their day, it was culturally unacceptable uh, for men to speak to women in public. And this was true of other cultures in that day as well. But uh, this is not a sin. And Jesus, who is God, and sinless He approaches this woman. So she's asking the question. Perhaps she's taken back a little. Someone is acknowledging me. And perhaps she's a little scared at that, right? And so this is what Jesus does. Now, in verses 10 and following, he uses something as simple as water to talk about the gospel. He takes their setting, their context, and he takes something that is natural and he uses it to point something that is supernatural, something that is spiritual. And so he takes something as basic as water and makes a statement about it. And so what does he do? In verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, so note there that salvation is a gift. Remember, there was Nicodemus, a Pharisee. They thought they could earn their salvation. They were self-righteous. And Jesus stripped him of all of the credentials that he might have had by being a Pharisee. He says, you know what? You have all these things. You clean up nicely all this. But you know what? You need to be born again. You can't do that, Nicodemus. Only God can do that. Well, here, Jesus points out that salvation is the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus, he he intrigues her in one sense. He throws the bait out there. Not that he's trying to trap her, but he's going to see if she's going to take it. And he wants her to think about spiritual things. And so he puts it out there. And yet this this metaphor for salvation it teaches us about what salvation offers quenching of our souls thirst and so jesus moves the conversation to uh, from talking about natural things to supernatural things now she's a little offended because uh, if we read there in verse 11, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then she asks if he's greater than Jacob. You know, they, they really cherished that gift that Jacob had given to their, their people earlier. And it's almost like, are you committing blasphemy, Jesus? Where are you going to get this living water? Living water was running water. It was not stagnant water. Uh, some say that this well, Jacob's well, collected water, runoff water. It wasn't living water because that's the contrast here. So she asked that question. And so Jesus then exposes this woman's pursuit in life to find satisfaction. Um not only in illicit things, illicit relationships, but even in things that are gifts from God. And he does that to us today. And so he exposes her sin, as we've read in verse 18. And uh, the conversation will continue. We'll look at that next time, Lord willing. And so you see what Jesus does here. He, he is exposing The fact that she is pursuing something in life. And that ultimately is joy and satisfaction in the things of this earth. And he points this out that she cannot obtain that joy and satisfaction with anything on this earth. Except the one thing, the one person who has come down from heaven and is now seated before her on this earth. And that's him. Jesus. And so then... Jesus directs her to that which does, that which does satisfy the soul. And by the way, when you have tasted this living water, when you drink from this living water, it's, it's kind of like giving your pet dog beef for the first time or table food for the first time, you know, it You give your dog dry dog food, whatever you feed him, and uh, he eats it, he eats it, he eats it. But then you give him, you know, your food and then you put the dog food down there and he just looks up at you like, "Uh, where's that other food? I'm not eating this. I know what you're having now. Right. You can't go back. And maybe eventually he goes back because he's got to live. You got to eat. But that's the way it is with Christ. When you drink from the salvation and the waters of salvation that he offers, it's, it's like drinking from those igloo coolers on the golf course on a mid-afternoon in humid Georgia. You know, they're in a little paper, you, you get the little paper cone cup, or maybe you've played five innings and you're in the dugout and you're like tasting all the dust. But once you drink that water, it's like there's nothing else that will satisfy my Thirst. That's the way it is with Jesus. And that's what he provides for her and tells her here. So he makes it clear that he's not talking about literal water there in verses 13 and 14. He's talking about the water that um, will quench one's thirst forever. You'll never have to draw uh, from this water again, he says in verses 13 and 14. In fact, it will spring up into a person, everlasting life In John 7, Jesus stands up at the feast and he talks about this same water. And then John tells us that he's talking about the Spirit. And that's significant. That would take a while to unpack. But the promise of the Holy Spirit to a Christian and a disciple of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, his gospel of grace, that he will be your God. You will be his people. He will come and dwell with you. That he will draw near as you draw near to him through Jesus and that you will have this restored fellowship again. That goes all the way back to the temple and the tabernacle. God coming down, dwelling with his people as they draw near through the shed blood of the animal sacrifices. You may have at that point through that one way restored communion and fellowship with the living God. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God. With us. So Jesus calls for a husband. She confesses she has no husband. And she didn't give all the information. So Jesus says, in that you said, well, you have no husband. You've had five, rather. And the one with whom you are now is not your husband. And So she confesses, I, I perceive you are a prophet. And so just note Jesus' method here. He treats this woman with dignity. You know, sometimes men, they need to hear the full force of the law. The wages of sin is death. They need to hear that because they're so prideful. They haven't been broken. But there are some people they they know that they feel it every day and they're despondent. And And what they need, they need to hear immediately the the soothing balm of Gilead, Jesus Christ and the gospel. And she's at that point. He treats her with dignity. He gains her ear. He uses their context to talk about spiritual thing, things. And then he confronts her with her sin. You have to do that. And then he offers himself to her by way of this metaphor, living water. And so let us take our cue from Jesus as we see how it is he engages others in evangelism. And what is it that he offers? He offers the only water that quenches your soul's desire. A soul parched by sin. A soul parched by the ways of a fallen world. And you see, here's what you need to know. Her need is your need. Her need is my need. We all need this spiritual drink. That Jesus offers in the gospel. Our soul's thirst is of a spiritual nature, and therefore there is nothing earthly that will ever quench your soul's thirst and desire. And deep down the world knows this, right? Deep down the world knows this, and as Christians, as light, we expose this truth. We are saying to people look, you have the good life, you have money. You have the American dream, the family, the house, all of this. But there's something missing, isn't there? In the fourth century, Aurelius Augustine of South Africa, not of North Africa. Some call him a church father, a Christian. He prayed this prayer. He said, you, O Lord, have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. You see, that's the key. We were made for God. We weren't made to be our own gods. We were made to serve and worship one living and true God, the triune God. That's why Jesus has come down. He's going to lead this woman to himself and his gospel. And then they will talk about worshiping the true God in the way that that God has prescribed. Fifty-six years ago, some of you are about to feel really old right now. Fifty-six years ago, the Rolling Stones, they released a single that says it all. I can't get no satisfaction. And Mick Jagger was asked about that song, and he said, basically, it's my view of the world. My frustration with everything. And in particular, he was talking about the the American way. Consumerism. That's what happens in America, right? Everything becomes disposable over time. Men figure out, okay, that's going to last too long. We won't sell enough. But even for the things that do last longer, they they don't satisfy. If you know me, you know I like golf. If you know me well, you probably know I like it too well. And what happens in the golf industry, you know, there are those irons, the metal irons. And year after year, companies come out with the new and improved iron. And so, guys, they spend tons of money on new irons every year. But guess what? Unless you hit that ball right in the center of the the club, it's it's, going to do the same thing no matter how much technology you pack into it. And so guys like me get to buy used equipment. Thank you. But the point is, we seek satisfaction in things that do not supply satisfaction. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, you can always direct people to, to that chapter in the Bible. Solomon, who had all the means in the world, he, he opens up Ecclesiastes and he says, basically, I'm going to try to make sense of life from this world view. I'm going to try to make sense of life under the sun. That is without God's view, without a biblical and divine worldview. And so one of the things he tries to make sense of out of life is by using pleasure. Okay, life is all about pleasure. And so what did he do? He built houses. He planted vineyards. He had wine that flowed like the Nile. Uh, he had his own bands. He hired people, musicians, so that he could have a house party whenever he wanted. He had flock after flock after flock of animal. Today, it would, he would have a five-car garage filled with exotic cars. In fact, he says this. He says, when it came to this exercise of finding meaning in life through pleasure, he said, I was great and I excelled more than all. But in the end, he summarizes it. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and all the labor in which I had told. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. It was frustrating. It was empty. It did not work. It did not satisfy. He says there is no prophet under the sun. In the Old Testament, God's own people, the Israelites, they turn to other gods, false gods. And God sends his prophet to them because of their idolatry. And in Jeremiah 2.13, he said this. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewn, cut, or made for themselves cisterns, pots. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see the foolishness of idolatry? Do you see the foolishness of forsaking the living God and setting up for yourself another idol? God says, look, you're trying to put water into cracked pots and the water you're using, it's not living water. He says, I myself am that living water. And so in Colossians, the Bible says that covetousness is Idolatry, because we are not satisfied in God alone. Everything else, we try to find our satisfaction in that and we desire what our neighbors have and what we don't have. And then those things become our God, false gods. And so the gospel comes and in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, promising Israel's restoration with himself. He says, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and verse 6, Jesus promises salvation. What is the byproduct of salvation and restoration with Him? It says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to Him who thirsts. Jesus Christ is that living water. He Himself and alone is the gift of God. He promises, He provides for us forgiveness of sins. He, he washes away all of our sins. And, and surely that's what He's promising. And one says to this woman, all of your sins will forever be washed away. You will be clean. You will be a new creation. But more than that, you will be satisfied in and through me. And so she only has to reach out by faith and believe and trust Jesus. And so this morning, do you see Jesus' message here? Do you see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the power of God, Romans 1 calls it that. Do you see the gospel's power to cross cultural barriers? There's all this talk about what matters. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can cross the cultural barrier and eternally bring men from every tongue, tribe, and nation together so that they are in harmony with the living and true God and therefore in harmony with one another. Do you see the futility of seeking meaning And true satisfaction without a life restored to God through Jesus. Do you see it's foolishness? It's like trying to cure your thirst by drinking dirt. Some people they hoard, some people fill their bank accounts, some people buy multiple homes, whatever it is they have, their family. Things that are good gifts from God, but those won't satisfy. Your spouse won't satisfy your spouse can't be a good God. And Christian, we still experience this, don't we? Maybe you've been a Christian five years, five decades. You know what it's like when you've lost your way a little? When you're out of fellowship with God. And you've sought you've sought communion, you've sought pleasure without seeking the living Christ. You know that it is futile. And last, do you see the fullness of Christ here. The fullness of Christ in his person, that he is God, that he is Man. He is the God man who became weary. And yet at the same time, he knows all things. If he is the God man without sin, that means, as Hebrews puts it, he is our sympathetic high priest. And so Jesus is exercising sympathy with this woman, seeking her out to save her, the one who is lost. And at some point, if you're a Christian, at some point in your life, Jesus made that divine appointment with you. And he sought you out and he saved you. And for that, we should praise him forever. And we will. But also we see Christ's fullness in his provision, in his grace. He's able to save the self-righteous Pharisee as he did with Nicodemus, stripping him of all of his religious garb, all of his attainments, and his own things that propped him up. Jesus says no. You need to be born again. And he comes to this woman. This woman who is an outcast. This woman who had illicit relationships. This woman no doubt whose conscience nagged her. And Jesus comes. He cleanses her. And he also says. Um, by the way. What you've been seeking. He is here. Like Ecclesiastes says. God has put eternity in their hearts. Every Human heart has a Christ-shaped hole. And only Jesus Christ can fill that hole. You young people, remember this. Because when you go out into the world, the world's going to come at you this way and this way. They're going to say, follow me, follow me, follow me. And what they're saying, really, is follow me to hell. But they're also saying, you do this, you'll be fulfilled. You do this, you'll be satisfied. And the next thing you know, a year Five years later, you're gonna find yourself empty in a miserable wreck. Only Jesus can will can and will bring, bring cleansing. I like what Charles Wesley said in that old hymn: His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Do you think that woman felt this? Look down at verse 28. After this conversation, John tells us the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You see, she forgot about her thirst. She left her water pot. She ran back to her town. She's telling others about Christ. Why? Because she drank from that living water. And her soul, being a restored soul, was truly satisfied. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for the joy of Christ that he gives to us. That he, according to your appointment, came to seek and to save that which is lost. We are lost without you. We are doomed without you. But you sent your son to die so that we might live. And for that, we are forever thankful. We pray in his name. Amen.